Amen. Diners, drive-ins, and dives. 30-minute meals by Rachel Ray. Cupcake Wars. Beat Bobby Flay. These are all shows on the Food Network. Did you know that this year the cable channel was seen in 100 million American homes? This blows my mind. A single television channel devoted to food and cooking. It just proves what an impact food has on our daily lives. And such was the case in Corinth. In fact, issues involving food had crept into the Corinthians' worship. A major debate had erupted in the church. It was a beef over beef. I have no doubt if there had been a food network at the time, this controversy would have become primetime programming. Tailgate warriors would have aired live from Corinth. A messy food fight had started in the church, and the Apostle Paul steps in to make sure it gets chopped. That's right. Well, chapter 8 begins. Now, concerning things offered to idols. Now, recall, at this point in 1 Corinthians, we're listening to one side of a two-sided conversation. Paul is answering questions that had been asked in a previous letter. And one of the questions involved meat sacrificed to idols. In the ancient world, there were two places to purchase ground round. You could go to the market and you could pay premium prices, or you could buy your beef from the pagan temples. When an animal was sacrificed to an idol, the priest ate a portion, then the leftover cuts were sold to raise revenues for the temple. Some of the Corinthian Christians purchased the bargain beef. Now understand, these Corinthians, they weren't idolaters. They were just shrewd shoppers. They were your coupon clippers. They hated paganism and all that went with it. They just didn't like paying top dollar for their beef. They liked to get their hamburger on the cheap. But was this right? How can a Christian eat meat that he or she knows was sacrificed to an idol? See, the idea of guilt by association had been firmly etched in their minds. If it was in the devil's freezer, how can it be put on the grill for God? And this was not just an issue for the ancients. Oh boy, a recent headline appeared in our news feeds. Has your Thanksgiving turkey been sacrificed to idols? The author reported America's most popular turkey brand, Butterball, is now processing turkeys according to halal or Islamic standards. Eat a Butterball turkey today and it might have been blessed in the name of Allah. So what if you're shopping for your Thanksgiving turkey and the best buy is a Butterball? Would it matter to you if it had received an Islamic blessing? You're going to gather at the table with your family. You're going to eat meat to the glory of Jesus. In fact, the money you save is either going to get donated to your church. Is it okay to eat the butterball? Or is this purchase going to make you a turkey in God's eyes? Well, this very issue had divided the church in Corinth. There were some that says, yes buy it. There were others that said, no, don't. But you see, everyone was adamant. They were right. 
More revealing than the debate over meat was the haughtiness and the arrogance it revealed among the Corinthians. Paul will deal with their beef, but first he addresses their pride. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. You see, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's interesting, though, that there was knowledge on both sides of this issue. I mean, folks on the don't do it side... They understood the dangers of idolatry. Demonic forces are behind the worship of false gods. Whereas folks on the go-to-it side knew that idols were nothing but sticks of wood, that false gods don't really exist, and that meat sacrificed on their altars is just that, a piece of meat. The don't-do-its and the go-to-its each had valid points. The problem was that both groups failed to recognize the legitimacy of each other's concerns. They all thought, I'm right and you're wrong. Their knowledge had gone to their heads, not to their hearts. The football helmet that my son used to wear contained a rubber bladder that you inflated with air. There was a nozzle on top of the helmet where you inserted the needle and you pumped air into the helmet. I'm afraid some of us have a similar nozzle embedded into our scalp. We learn a little truth and what happens? It goes to our head. We become right and everybody else becomes wrong. Well, here in chapter 5, or back in chapter 5, Paul used leaven or yeast as a type of sin. And why did he do that? It's because leaven corrupts by puffing up. See, sin does the same. Sin corrupts by puffing up. Sin is the result of pride. You know, the most dangerous person in the church is the guy who knows just enough to think that he knows it all. Be leery of the self-proclaimed expert who feels it's his duty to roam the church halls and police the saints. I love the quote, Some people drink at the fountain of knowledge. Others just gargle. Beware of the garglers. Paul says to both camps here in Corinth, let some air out of your head and pump a little love into your heart, would you? You see, the Corinthians had big heads but small hearts. It's been said, love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. We won't always agree on every issue, but we can always show each other love. Well, Paul says in verse 3, but if anyone loves God... This one is known by him. The key to knowing God is in the heart, not just the head. Blaise Pascal once wrote, Man's wisdom must be understood to be loved, but God's wisdom must be loved to be understood. Head knowledge has a place. God's truth is vital to our faith, but academic knowledge alone is not enough to save us. Real saving faith is a heart-held faith. Well, he dives into this topic here of meat sacrificed to idols in verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. There's only one God. Idols are just powerless. An idol is just a chunk of wood or stone, he says. 
For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Other deities don't exist, yet even if they did, as men proclaim, our Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ would reign over them. He reigns supreme. The Father created all things. Our Lord Jesus sustains all things. If pagan gods did exist, they would bow and obey the Christian God. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Some other Christians are affected by superstition, he says. They believe in what isn't so, and thus they might be tempted to placate a superstition or bow to a false belief. They might think, do we really want to eat a slice of devil's food cake? Paul says, don't worry. Your diet and the devil are not connected. Foods don't make you holy, for Paul writes. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. Hey, we are right with God through faith, not food. A right relationship with God is one through the work of Christ, not through our own efforts. Eat or don't eat, our diet makes no difference in our standing before God. Now realize, just because Satan uses an object at some point, like meat sacrificed to an idol, that doesn't mean that that object now becomes intrinsically evil. For example, Satan inspires songs that promote evil and lead people astray. But the chords and the instruments that make up that music are the same chords and instruments used to praise God. I mean, an A chord is amoral in and of itself. A piece of meat is just a piece of meat, and a chord is just music. It ends up good or evil depending on the motive behind its use. The same is true with dancing, or fashion, or alcohol, or gambling, or a thousand other issues that cause controversy among Christians. Some issues aren't right or wrong, black or white. They're gray matters. In 1928, the great preacher Donald Barnhouse, he spoke at a Bible conference attended by 200 young people. And among those young people, there were some prudish counselors. One afternoon, an older woman, she approached Dr. Barnhouse about an appalling, sinful, wicked practice that was going on among the girls at the camp. You won't believe this, but there were girls there walking around the camp in front of the boys with no stockings. (laughs) I told you. Without stockings. These petty old ladies wanted the good preacher to rebuke the supposed spirit of compromise that had invaded the church. Dr. Barnhouse, he writes about the incident. He says, looking them straight in the eye, I said, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, she didn't? I answered, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. 
So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century. (laughs) His answer immediately stifled the protest and made the ladies rethink the issue. A Christian from America may take offense when his German brother drinks a beer, while the German may be appalled when an American sister in Christ wears a two-piece swimsuit to the beach. I've known Christians who have never felt right and would never, ever darken the doors of a church wearing shorts, but they sure don't mind lighting up a cigarette when they leave the service. Like meat sacrificed to idols, cultural taboos are a moving target. They change from place to place and from tribe to tribe and from generation to generation. Remember, the meat is nothing but meat. It's the attitude behind its use that becomes important. And it varies from conscience to conscience. And my conscience is not your master, and your conscience is not my master. Jesus is our only master, and we all should follow his spirit in these gray matters. I love what Mark Twain once said, the trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but they know so many things that ain't so. And this applies to church. Too many church folk have been trained by superstition or prejudice or legend or legalism People impose rules, govern their conscience. Rather than just love God and love people. Rather than be led by the Holy Spirit. Rather than just do what glorifies God. It's often easier for Christians to follow the orders. Paul doesn't encourage the Christians here to violate their conscience. He wants them to retrain their conscience. So that they no longer walk according to tradition, but according to truth. He wants them to be led by love not law. And so he says in verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish For whom Christ died. Now remember back in verse 1. Knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. Logically you may know that meat is just meat. But a younger Christian with a weaker faith. He sees meat as a moral issue. To eat that meat would be compromising his faith. Thus logic might allow you to eat. But love requires restraint. If we insist on our liberty, knowing that it will lead a brother astray, what was right for us becomes a sin for him. And we can become so right that we become wrong. It might be fine for you to drink a glass of wine, or go out dancing with your wife, or listen to certain types of secular music. You've grown in Christ. You've gained some discernment and some self-control. But what you're doing might lead a weaker believer down the wrong path. And it's a sin for you to even take that risk. If what you do could harm a brother, love says, don't do it. More important than us making our points is us caring for our brothers and sisters. Paul reiterates this in verse 12. He says, but when... 
you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And notice the extent here to which love takes Paul. He will never again eat meat. I can't fathom the depth of that sacrifice. (laughs) Imagine juicy steaks and spiced sausage and barbecue brisket and racks of ribs. And Paul says, I'll never eat meat again. Are you kidding me? Paul is prepared to give it all up for the faith of another believer. Do you really want to stumble the person for whom Christ died? To sin against a weaker brother is to sin against Christ. Well, chapter 9 continues this discussion about Christian liberty. But on another topic, Paul begins to point to how he curtailed his freedoms as an apostle, gave up certain perks and privileges to keep the Corinthians from stumbling. He begins, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? As a side note, here and in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, we learn that one of the requirements for being an apostle was to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Paul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says, I've seen the risen Lord. Am I not an apostle? He continues, Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The Corinthian church was another evidence of Paul's apostleship. I mean, a thriving church had been born in an evil city. This too was proof of God's hand on Paul's ministry. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord in Cephas, which was another name for Peter? One apostolic perk was food and lodging from the host church. The apostles would go and the people they were ministering to would cover their costs. They had certain travel benefits. Another one of those benefits is that an apostle could travel with his wife. He could take his wife when he went to visit various churches. And this is how Cephas, or Peter, this is how Peter rolled. He took his wife with him. Paul could have demanded similar treatment. It was his apostolic right. And yet instead he refused to take advantage of his rights for the sake of the Corinthians. Instead he learned to travel light. Of course verse 3 is a huge problem for our Roman Catholic friends who believed that Peter was the first pope. For if that's true, then we got a married pope. Big problem. Peter had a wife. Which reminds me of the newspaper tycoon who had three sons. He wanted to select one of his sons to be his successor, but he wasn't sure which one of the sons would make the best newspaper man. And so he proposed a test. He asked each boy to come up with the most shocking, the most sensational three-word headline possible. Well, the first son, he composed his headline, Biden turns Republican. (laughs) Man, that was pretty sensational. But the second son bested him. His read, 
Ayatollah becomes Jewish. That was shocking. And yet it was the third son who won the prize. His headline had just two words, Pope elopes. (laughs) I mean, that's over the top. Paul's point is that as an apostle, he had certain rights that he willingly forfeited. Other apostles were married and they traveled with their wife. Paul stayed single. He writes in verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Here's another right that Paul forfeited due to his love for the Corinthians. From the earliest days, the church supported its leaders financially so that they could devote themselves to full-time ministry. Paul was entitled to such support, but in Corinth, he waived that privilege. Acts 18 verse 3 tells us that while he was there, he lodged with Aquila and Priscilla. And he helped make ends meet by working with them in their tent-making business. His intent was not to be a financial burden on the Corinthians. But now he begins to question the wisdom of that strategy. He says in verse 7, Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? See, Paul's strategy to work a secular job to support himself financially had not been optimal ministry-wise. It had created burdens for him. And it limited what he could do. And here to illustrate it, he mentions the soldier and the vine dresser and the dairy farmer. Soldiers should be supported by the people they help to defend. If a soldier in battle is worried about his family back home, whether they're starving or getting evicted, how can they stay focused on the fight? A distracted soldier is a defeated soldier. He's better on the battlefront if he's not so much worried about the home front. And Paul's point is the same is true for a pastor. How can he give himself fully to the study of God's word and to prayer for God's people if his own needs aren't met? Paul also says you won't find a thirsty vine dresser or a dairy farmer with brittle bones. Why? Because the vine dresser is drinking from his vineyard and the farmer is drinking milk from his own cows. And likewise, a pastor should be supported from the finances taken from his own ministry. Now understand, no pastor should draw an exorbitant salary. But neither should a faithful pastor make the minimum. You know, a lot of churches pray, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. (laughs) And a church with that attitude may just get what they pay for, a poor pastor. Paul is rebuking the Corinthians here. They need to pony up and pay their pastor. Verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? I got scripture on this, Paul says. For it is written in the law of Moses. And here Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. A verse that when you read it initially, you won't associate it with paying the pastor. Apparently the Spirit's application of scripture can be quite broad. Here's Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. A good farmer, he allows his ox to munch the grain as he threshes the wheat. A weak ox would be worthless, so he needs to eat while he works. Paul says, just as feeding the ox is an expense of the harvest, supporting the pastor is an expense of the spiritual harvest. 
For Paul concludes his commentary on Deuteronomy. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. It's every worker's hope to get paid a wage commiserate of his contribution. And the same is true of a pastor. Years ago, I had a fellow in the church who suggested capping my salary. I resisted. Not because I wanted a lot of money, but because I needed a lot of hope. Why kill a man's incentive to work hard? I told the elders at the time, I said, look, please, you can raise my salary, you can lower my salary. But don't ever put me in a situation where there's nothing I can do about my salary. I mean, that produces a hopeless worker and a hopeless pastor. Paul understood men and pastors and what motivates both. And so he says, he who plows should plow in hope. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Now here's a spiritual principle that has been vital to the growth and life of the church. If a pastor helps you to grow in your faith, then you should support him materially. If a church adds to your spiritual life, then it's a small trade-off for you to help that church pay a few of its bills. (laughs) I'm not making it up. I'm just reading it. You understand that? (laughs) And if this applies to all pastors, it certainly applies to Paul's dealings with the Corinthians. He says, if others are partakers of this this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul had founded the church at Corinth. He was the pastor most entitled to a salary. But he had laid aside his rights, lest someone accuse him of selfish motives. Understand, Paul was not above accepting a church's financial help. On other occasions, he gladly received such support just not in Corinth. Perhaps the Corinthians were suspicious of crooked clergy. Maybe they'd been burned by another pastor. We don't know. But Paul wanted to say to this church that he cared more about their soul than he did about their money. And this is how Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has patterned our approach to money. Surely we have our needs. Hope no one thinks that the power company donates electricity to the church. Last year, we paid Walton EMC a whopping 20 grand. I think we would be well within our God-ordained right to be bolder in our comments about giving. But for 42 years, we've chosen to waive those rights. I realize how often churches have abused appeals for money. Folks have been manipulated as a result. And thus, for the sake of the gospel... We've been very, very cautious about our approach to funds. We want you to know that Calvary Chapel exists to meet your needs, not the other way around. We've always believed that God will take care of His church if we're faithful to the ministry that He's given us. And He has. I'll never forget the fellow who came up to me after a service one Sunday and he said, Pastor Sandy, you never talk about money, but I got you figured out. 
You don't have to talk about money because I know what's happening here. There's one guy who's, who's floating this church. You've got one rich guy in your church who's floating this whole thing. That's why you never have to talk about money. I says, you're right. I'm found out, and his name is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? When an Old Testament worshiper brought his animal to the altar, the priest who administered the sacrifice, he would get a choice cut of the meat. He was paid in beef. And thus he's saying that the Old Testament priest was supported by the worshipers. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So what was true of the Old Testament priest is also true of the New Testament pastor. Pastors should be paid from the monetary sacrifices offered by the people of God in his work. I once attended a church years and years ago that every second and fourth Sundays, the offering was just given to the pastor. They just took the offering, dumped it in a bag, and gave it to the pastor. Every second and fourth Sundays. You can bet he preached his best sermons on the second and fourth Sundays. And of course, if you got mad at him, then you would hold back your offering and give it on the first or third Sunday because it was just going for the church. I'm not sure it was a wise method. But at least the church was biblical in paying the pastor from the offerings. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Paul would rather have died than be portrayed as a money-hungry preacher. Reminds me of Billy Graham. Early in his ministry, after his crusade here in Atlanta, a newspaper ran a photo of Billy leaving the stadium with bags and bags of money. Of course, he was innocent of any wrongdoing, but it was certainly bad optics. And from that day forward, Billy Graham always tried to separate himself from the money. Immediately afterwards, Graham adopted a modest salary and set up strict guidelines for how others would handle the ministry's finances. He wanted everything to not just be above board, but to appear above board. And thus he eliminated any appearance of impropriety. This should be our attitude as well. And then Paul says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, I tell young men who come to me wanting to be pastors, if you can do anything else in the world other than be a pastor and be happy doing it, then don't be a pastor. Being a pastor isn't just a career move. It should be the passion of a man's heart. It's a calling from God. Paul says he had no choice in the matter. Being a pastor was laid on Paul of necessity. Woe to him if he didn't preach the gospel. Paul would have been successful at whatever he did, but satisfied? I don't think so. God called Paul to preach, and he would be happy doing nothing else. He says, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. 
Paul's ministry, he calls it a stewardship, a divine responsibility laid upon him by God himself. And his reward was not charging folks a dime for that ministry. Paul says, I've never abused my authority. And this too is our reward. I can't tell you how satisfying it is to stand here and say that we've never pressured people for money. For 42 years, we've we've never put the screws on people and tried to press people in and make them give. We've never even passed an offering plate. We've trusted God to provide our needs, and He has always been faithful. Once I was watching a television special on the first 50 years of the NBA. One of the old-timers said, The team owners were the dumbest people on earth. They paid us a salary, but they didn't have to. We would have played for free. They played for the love of the game. And this is how I feel about being a pastor. Now, don't misunderstand. I appreciate my salary. My wife especially appreciates my salary. You are biblical for paying me. But if you guys didn't pay me to be a pastor of this church, I'd pay you for the opportunity. I would. Pastor is the most demanding, taxing, challenging, intense job I know. But I wouldn't trade being one for any other post in the world. I thank God daily for the opportunity to communicate His Word and to pastor His people. And I thank you too. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Now, Paul's freedom in Christ was far-reaching here. He was free from the law. He was free to eat meat. He was free from money and the love of money. And he was also free from the opinions of men. Paul didn't care one iota what people thought of him. His only desire was the Lord's approval. But he also cared about what people thought of Jesus and the gospel. For he calls himself an ambassador for Christ. This was why he was diligent to build bridges to different people groups. He elaborates on his strategy for spreading the gospel in verse 20. He says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul was faithful, but he was also flexible. If his audience were Jews... He would observe Jewish customs. He would eat kosher and he'd keep the Sabbath. It wasn't time or place to flaunt his freedom. Why try to prove a point and lose a soul who needs Jesus? But when Paul spoke to Gentiles, he downplayed his Jewishness. And he extolled his freedoms. Paul knew if he could fit in, he would be in a better position to speak up. He was wise. Now, obviously, we're not talking about compromising moral or ethical or spiritual or biblical values. Paul was pointing out that he adapted to the culture of the people at hand. You know, it's true, most likely, it's the biker who's going to win the biker to Christ. 
It's the salesman who's going to win the salesman. It's the housewife who's going to win the housewife. Paul identified with the person or persons he wanted to reach. He understood their culture. He recognized their situation. And he found common ground from which to build a bridge. And yet few Christians today think like Paul. Our polarized world conditions us to look for the differences between us rather than the similarities. We meet someone and we start our checklist. Race, politics. We go right down the checklist. We realize where we're different. When in reality, our similarities are probably far more numerous than our differences. We both have a car. We have a mortgage, we got kids, we hold down a job, etc., etc., etc. Paul is saying, focus on your similarities. Build a rapport with the people around you. Win people's trust and respect, then you can share with them the gospel. Evangelism expert Donald McGravin once said, The world has more winnable people than ever before, but it's possible to come out of a ripe field empty-handed. And that's what's happening today. The world we live in is hungry for the gospel, but the church doesn't get close enough to people to present it in a compelling way. When Hudson Taylor landed on mainland China, he struggled in his efforts to spread the gospel. One day the Lord told him to give up his western clothes and his customs and start dressing like the Chinese, even cut his hair. This offended his fellow western missionaries, but it built a bridge to the locals That yielded a great spiritual harvest. Hudson Taylor didn't go to China to reach missionaries. The founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, once said, I would stand on my head and play a tambourine with my feet if I thought it would help me win one lost soul to Jesus. That's how I feel. I'll try anything other than sin if it'll help me reach people for Jesus Christ. I might even get a tattoo. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Chapter 9 ends with a trip to the stadium. See, Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games. At the time, the competition in Corinth eclipsed the Olympics in Athens. The Greek peninsula was a hotbed for athletics. And Paul was a sports buff. He had tickets, man. He loved to watch the games. And in verse 24, he compares the Christian life to an athletic contest. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Over 50 years ago, U.S. Olympic coach Brutus Hamilton, he compiled a list of what he thought would be the ultimate achievements in the world of track and field. He listed what he thought were the limits of human endeavor. No one would ever run a 9.2 second 100 yard dash. Or a 3 minute 57 second mile. Or throw a shot put more than 62 feet. Or high jump more than 7 foot 1 inch. Or long jump 27 feet. Or pole vault more than 16 feet. Today, every one of those barriers have not only been eclipsed, they've been shattered. And spiritually speaking, friends, you too can go higher 
And you can last longer. And you can be stronger than you want thought possible. All that holds us back is our lack of faith. And here Paul tells the Corinthian Christians to get serious. It's time to be determined. Don't give up the first time you get knocked down. You know, the all-time NFL rushing leader is Dallas Cowboys halfback Emmitt Smith. Over his career, Emmitt rushed 18,355 yards. But did you know that Emmitt was knocked down every 4.2 yards? That means he had to get back up 4,409 times. I mean, a man's total yardage doesn't come easy. In fact, nothing of any real lasting value in this life comes easy. If you want to rack up some yards for Jesus and score a few touchdowns, man, your faith needs to toughen up. He says in verse 25, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. When an athlete is training for an event, there are some foods he won't eat. There are some activities he won't participate in. A training regiment requires some discipline. The Greek athlete exerted all this effort for a flimsy reef. Just some leaves. Some you cut off a bush out front in the front yard. Whereas a Christian receives eternal rewards. And Paul's question is, how much more determined should we be for the prize that is before us? Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air or shadow boxes, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. The phrase translated discipline my body, it literally means I blacken my eye. Paul uses severe measures in his discipline and in his training. He pushes his body. He does whatever it takes to make his body do what it doesn't want to do. And every child of God needs the same kind of mindset. You see, for a Christian, God's Spirit has put it in our hearts to obey. As Jesus said, the Spirit is willing. But our problem is the body. For the flesh is weak. And thus we need to discipline. We need to push our bodies to align with our true desires. Jesus transforms our heart, but it's our job to train our bodies. For Paul worries that he could disqualify himself from serving God. Do you worry about this? I worry about this every day. That stupid Sandy could do something moronic that would cause him to be disqualified. As he puts it, that after I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He imagines a scenario where his soul is saved, but his life is wasted. God, help me that that doesn't happen to me. Help me, help us all that it doesn't happen to us. Christians can be rendered unusable. See, the swimmer has to stay in his lane or he'll lose. The boxer can't throw a low blow. The runner can't leave before the gun sounds. To win, you have to play by the rules. And likewise, to be useful in the kingdom, you've got to serve God His way. God doesn't reward shortcuts 
or wildcat operations separate from his spirit and his will. All our performance enhancing schemes and tactics and gimmicks won't take the place of faithful obedience. Do God's work God's way and you'll never regret it. You'll receive an imperishable eternal crown. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning.